Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. First guest, Russ Kestrick, who joins us now from our studios in New York, our Bloomberg 1130 studios. He is a portfolio manager for BlackRock's Global Allocation. Russ, great to speak with you once again. Sorry I couldn't be there in person. Let me ask you, first of all, just what you're going to be listening for tomorrow. As I mentioned, the Fed kicking off this two-day meeting today. I expect we'll get some commentary on the balance sheet. What are you going to be listening for when Fed Chair Janet Yellen takes to the podium after that meeting concludes tomorrow? Well, good morning. I think there are a couple things. Obviously, the balance sheet's going to be front and center. I think the other is we had, up until August, a string of consistently weak inflation reports. That started a shift in August, uh, thanks to some, some hike in, in gasoline and energy prices. What is the Fed's view of inflation? Uh, are they still concerned about the disappointments earlier in the year? Or do they believe those are transitory and therefore a December hike is more likely? Have we seen indications that that, that, that inflationary headwinds are transitory confirmed? Something that Janet Yellen said now many months ago. She walked it back a little bit when she was speaking and testifying on, on Capitol Hill. Uh, has her initial assessment of that been confirmed by the data that we've seen here over these last few months? Well, certainly the August print was stronger than we've seen. But I, I think there is a legitimate question here because... Many times we talk about the transitory nature of the data, we cite particular instances, whether it's hotel accommodations or data charges going down. And the fact is, while those might be one-off events, you could also view those through the prism of a secular downward uh, price pressure in many industries, in telecom, in hotels. And that's something that that may continue. And perhaps the inflation numbers are not quite as transitory uh, as we think. We're focusing here on inflation. I think it's safe to say that uh, since since these last few meetings, we've been speaking less about the, the labor market. When you, when you look at the U.S. labor market today, the health of it, how much of a concern is it? And do you think that we've been a bit neglectful here, not talking more about the, the state of the labor economy, focusing so much on inflation? Well, you know, the funny thing is the labor market has been so steady. Uh, in some ways, you know, the, the CPI print has become what the non-farm payroll number used to be. I think what's remarkable about the labor market is not the consistency of the job gains. It's the fact that we're creating jobs at a faster pace than, than to, to keep a neutral unemployment rate, and yet wages remain stuck at around 2.5%. And that, to me, is the big conundrum, and it ties back to this inflation argument. When are we going to start to see, will we start to see that traditional relationship, the so-called Phillips curve, between the labor market and inflation? So far, it just hasn't manifested the way economic textbooks say it should. So, that, so that's the question. As you've been chewing this over, are you, are you any closer to, uh, if not an answer, a theory on why that's the case? Well, I think the theory is that there have been some things that have changed, and it's not as if the laws of economics have been repealed. At some point, I think if the labor market remains tight enough, you will nudge wages higher. But clearly, some of the mechanisms have changed, and I would cite uh, the role of globalization. I would say technology. I'd also probably cite the decline in private sector union membership as severing one of the links between cost pressures and wages that existed uh, more clearly 30 or 40 years ago. Russ Kessler with us from BlackRock. Tom Keen wandering. Did you walk to work today, Tom? How did you get in with the, with the, uh, with the traffic? To, I walked to work. The okay. Sikorsky, it was so busy and the security <laughs> was so... There's a little knoll on Central Park where the Sikorsky came down to pick me up. They usually do that at 3 hours. The Tom Keen knoll, Couldn't even yeah. do it today. 
<laughs> Couldn't even know. It's like where Nathan Hale was before he got over to Third Avenue and was tragically killed. In a, it was like a revolutionary there you war go. kind of thing. Good morning, David Gura. Good morning. There's lots, lots going on here in New York. Terrific news flow. We'll get to that uh, through the hour. Good morning, everyone, coast to coast and uh, worldwide as well. Russ Kostrich with us. And just brilliant ideas, Russ, over the last hour and a half uh, with you. Let me tie in your work with one Jeffrey Rosenberg. He of Carnegie Mellon, Mr. Rosenberg of BlackRock, will join us on our Fed show this tomorrow. Are you strategizing in a one-unit, one-economy, Gaussian probability world, a bell curve of one America, or are we so split in our wealth, in our inequality, in the amount of equity? Are we so split that it's not only two Americas politically, but it's two Americas financially for BlackRock? Well, certainly the economy looks different, and I think you're asking a very legitimate question. You know, we, we spoke back on, on the air a few minutes ago about the wealth effect. Now, the wealth effect goes exactly to your question. We've seen this enormous surge in wealth, household wealth up 50 percent in about six years. That is very significant for one part of the country. It's almost irrelevant for another part, particularly to the extent that much of those wealth gains came through the stock market, whereas you well know, many Americans simply don't participate. And I want to really emphasize, folks, this is something David and I have talked about, which is it's not East Coast, West Coast anymore, or, you know, Nashville saying they're the third coast. (laughs) It's about in every region. David, help me with the Carolinas here. I mean, in every region, there's a city here, a city there. That's booming. Is that right, David? Yeah. Down and, in the and, Carolinas? You, know, and, you mentioned North Carolina, where I'm from, of course. A, a lot of that seems to center around places where you have yeah. uh, institutions of higher education. You've got universities and colleges, and that seems to, to make a difference. And you, you see a, a lot of effort, particularly in western North Carolina, central and western North Carolina, to, uh, to kickstart communities that had relied on right. furniture or other forms of manufacturing. And then do we have a Fed dealing with that, Russ? And then does that lead us to bubbles? You know, Steve Roach, ex-Morgan Stanley, now at Yale University, uh, led the charge on bubble analysis. Are we bubbly? Are we bubblicious? Well, I, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, first of all, on the Fed, in fairness to the Fed, people have leveled a lot of criticism at them. Fair. The Fed really doesn't have the tool set to adequately deal with some of the issues we're talking about. You know, rates are a very blunt instrument, and I'm not sure that's the ideal mechanism to tackle inequality. Uh, in terms of bubbles, you know, I I don't think we're necessarily in an equity bubble. What I do believe is that we're in this unusual set of circumstances where stocks and bonds are expensive at the same time. We haven't seen that, at least to this extent, in many decades. Let me ask you uh, just about the the prospect of change uh, at the Federal Reserve. We've talked about this uh, a little bit this week and and the week before. Uh, Of course, Vice Chair Stan Fisher announcing his resignation effective in a couple weeks. Uh, time. Who knows what's going to happen to the Fed chair? There are other vacancies on the Fed uh, as well. How uh, transformative is this moment for the Fed? You know, it's it's a great question because we talk about the Fed, we talk about the Fed's reaction function, but obviously the Fed is an organic institution and it will change as its members change, which raises the question, what is the Fed going to look like in a year? Uh, you know, my, my own view is I don't believe we're going to see a significant shift in policy. Uh, given some of the comments from the administration, given some of the views they've expressed on the dollar, I would personally be surprised if we saw many of the open positions filled by uh, economists or, or, or others that have a reputation as being fairly hawkish. Mm. 
do you think we're going to see more business people? In other words, uh, is, is the day of the Fed stacked with, uh, with PhD economists coming to an end? Well, I don't think it's coming to an end, but I, I certainly think you will see more business people. There's been that tendency already with the administration. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, certainly the economy is changing in ways that are not fully captured by textbooks. And getting some of that granular, more tactile experience, I don't mm -hmm. think that would be bad. This is Ron Russ Costers, thank you so much for uh, perspective with BlackRock, with their strategy and asset allocation uh, as well. here in Washington, D.C. in the Ronald Reagan Building for a Bloomberg Live event on the future of healthcare, unlocking and supporting uh, value. Tom Keene in New York in our Bloomberg 1130 studios, and I'm joined by Dr. Toby uh, Cosgrove, the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic. I'll be speaking with him a little bit later on a panel with three other CEOs, the head of the American Cancer Society, the head of Pfizer, uh, and the head of Walgreens Boots Alliance uh, as well, and we're going to be talking about value-based uh, healthcare. Uh, Toby, what is it uh, exactly? Help me do my homework here ahead of, ahead of the panel. This is a, a, the new watchword. We're hearing this a lot across the healthcare spectrum. What is it exactly? Well, uh, currently, uh, most places are being paid on the basis of uh, a, a, an individual procedure or treatment. And what we're really looking at is beginning to treat people on the basis of the outcomes. And, and the idea is to keep people from getting sick, keep them out of the hospital, and we'll be paid on the basis of uh, maintaining their health. And so the healthier they are, the, the better off it'll be for us. And uh, so the objectives align with the patients. You say we... Uh, and I wonder what we means in this context. I'll be talking with you. You run a big, uh, big hospital, big medical center. I'm going to be talking to the head of a pharmaceutical company, uh, Walgreens Boots Alliance, and the American Cancer Society as well. Are all the parties together working on this? Who's, who's taking the lead when it comes to this transition? Well, the risks are really going to be on the providers. Uh, you know, we will be paid uh, a certain amount per month, per member per month, to look after patients. Uh, and we will be responsible for all of their care. Uh, and so the, the really the providers are the ones that take the risks, and the we is the providers. What's the risk uh, exactly? It sounds at face like this makes a lot of sense, that, that you should be paying for something that works, uh, you should be paying for things that are bundled, pay for the whole, the whole thing. What's, what's the risk that you're taking on with this transition? Well, the risk is uh, uh, twofold. First of all, uh, currently there's an upside risk. If we do better, uh, we get to share in the, uh, the, in the difference. Uh, if we, then eventually it'll be downside risk too. And if we don't do as well and cost less for taking care of patients, we're going to be responsible for that and we will lose money on it. So there's incentives both up and down. Where did this, uh, this idea come from? Does it date back to Michael Porter at Harvard Business School who had this revolutionary uh, idea? Why are we doing it at this point in time? Is it something catalyzed by the Affordable Care Act? Well, it actually dates way back before that. Uh, Romney really brought this in in Massachusetts uh, and with the idea, and we've really been looking at a new way over the last decade or so on how we get paid in health care and what the objectives of uh, the reimbursements are. Dr. Cosgrove, wonderful to speak to you again after Davos of this year. When, when you look at the four or seven or eight, I can't keep count, iterations of Republican proposed legislation in Congress, in Senate, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, what's the best proposal for doctors and nurses? 
Well, I'm concerned about all of them, to be honest with you. Uh, I think the concern is that there's going to leave a lot of people uncovered. Uh, and I frankly don't think that the bills, uh, the repeal bills, deal with the base, uh, the root cause of the problems. The root cause of the problem, as I see it, is the rising cost of health care. And that happens really for two reasons. First of all, you've got an older population. Uh, and secondly, there's more things mm-hmm. that we can do as health care providers to, to, to take care of them. So you're seeing across the world increasing cost of health care. Uh, and uh, none of these bills really begin yeah. to deal with that. Are we going to go across Lake Erie and do a Canadian plan? Are we heading for some form of Canadian or United Kingdom plan? Well, I don't think that's a political reality at this point in the United States. Uh, I think that uh, what I would like to see is that uh, none of these repeals uh, really take uh, effect. If you look at uh, the bill and you go back and what it really started out to do, it really wanted to increase coverage, which it did. It needed to improve the quality of health care. And if you see across the country over the last eight years, gradually you've seen an improvement in uh, quality of health care for hospitals. Uh, and then uh, the thing that it has not done well is control the cost of health care. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, in, I would hope that what we would see is uh, a coming together in a bipartisan f- uh, fashion to begin to look at the cost of health care, both the efficiency of how we deal uh, with patients who are sick and also how we begin mm-hmm. to keep people well and deal with the three epidemics which are really plaguing the United States right now, right. which is smoking, obesity, and uh, the opiate well, addiction. David Gurr and I want to get to the opioid issue here in a moment. Thank you, Alan Kruger of Princeton, for important comments yesterday. Dr. Cosgrove, David Gurr and I have to rip up the script. And we do that with Toby Cosgrove, who wandered out of medical school in three cups of coffee later, was in Da Nang running 22 casualties, staging flight, uh, trying to get people on airplanes so that they could live uh, coming out of wounds in Vietnam. We do this with a backdrop of Ken Burns, the Vietnam War. Yes, Mr. Burns will join us. Um, We've been really trying to work with his schedule, and we'll have Ken Burns on in October. Dr. Cosgrove, George Will calls Ken Burns' effort a masterpiece. What did you see in Vietnam that you need Ken Burns to tell in his documentary? I think Ken Burns uh, will tell a story uh, that is clearly the horror of war. Um, and there are no good good guys or people who wear a, high, a white hat in a war. Um, and uh, I think until you have participated in war, and you really don't recognize the magnitude of the destruction it is in both human lives and property. Within that is the medicine you learned. We've gone to a medicine that is so removed. Most of us barely know who the pediatrician is or maybe the surgeon wandering by on three levels. You're maybe not even sure who's going to operate on a given day. What can we learn about the medicine of another time and place around Vietnam, around the general care that we knew that we can bring forward and rekindle today? Well, first of all, I think that you uh, clearly recognize that the quality of care across the country has improved dramatically over time, and uh, even since the time of the Vietnam War. Just uh, let me put it in perspective for you for a second. During the, the Civil War, 95% of everybody who was injured died, any sort of an injury. In Vietnam, 95% of the people who were injured survived. Now it is closer to 98%. Uh, so the quality of the care, uh, care uh, both for civilians and the military, 
uh, has improved enormously. I think what is uh, being lost, and, and in fact what we're trying to uh, improve, is uh, the uh, fact that we need to, to concentrate on patients. Um, and uh, all of the things that surround the patients, particularly the emotional aspects and the empathy that are, are required to drive that. And at the Cleveland Clinic, one of the things that we did is we uh, said that our mantra is going to be putting patients first and everything that that involves. And everybody in the hospital, whether you are a neurosurgeon or you're driving the bus, uh, is uh, the, the reason that they're there is for patients. And I think once you're centered around that, it begins to change uh, the attitude that people have and the empathy which they exhibit. My, uh, one of my first summer jobs was at UNC Hospitals in Chapel Hill, uh, working with the department that looked into quality. It was clear that that was becoming the rage in, in healthcare policy, doing better at measuring the quality of care, uh, looking at how patients were faring and how they felt. Where do things stand now when you begin to assess the efficacy of treatment? Are we, are we doing a better job of uh, ensuring that the, the treatment is, is a quality treatment and that patients are doing better as a result. Yeah, we want people to come into the hospital to be safe uh, and free from errors and mistakes. And I think we're no question that we are having a much more high reliability uh, for our organization. The quality has improved uh, and it is improved with measurement. Uh, and one of the things that I think is so important uh, is the transparency uh, that goes with measuring quality. Uh, the transparency has to be both internal uh, to members of the healthcare team and it has to be external to the community. And we've uh, attempted to do that over time. But if you look at quality, quality really falls into three categories. Uh, it's uh, the clinical quality, uh, which we are measuring like crazy. But until recently, we did not consider the physical nor the emotional uh, quality that went with uh, hospitalization. And now we're much better at that uh, and measure it, uh, report it, share it uh, both internally and externally and right down to individually. David, this is what you and I love to do, and this is what our team puts together every day. Alan Kruger yesterday at Princeton and I believe you have Dr. Cosgrove with you in Washington from the Cleveland Clinic. Yeah, Dr. Toby Cosgrove, the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic, and I'm still thinking about many of the statistics that Dr. Kruger brought up yesterday on the show, among them that uh, nearly half of prime-age men, men between the uh, ages of 25 and 54, who aren't in the labor force, take pain medication on a daily basis. Two-thirds of those men, or about two million of them, take prescription pain medication uh, on a daily basis. It brings some economics to uh, what is a crisis in this country, the opioid crisis. Dr. Toby Cosgrove has been thinking about and speaking out about this uh, as well. Give us the lay of the land. Uh, we talk about it as a crisis. What constitutes that particular crisis? How bad are things uh, as you see them? Well, I think if you look at it just in terms of deaths, uh, this year there'll be 62,000 deaths uh, from uh, overdoses. Uh, that uh, compares with what went on in Vietnam. And then the total Vietnam War, there were 58,000 deaths. Uh, expected to go to 90,000 deaths over the next three years. Uh, which is uh, doesn't begin to talk about uh, the number of overdoses that there are. Just in Cuyahoga County, we saw over 7,000 overdoses come into uh, hospitals uh, uh, in the last year. Uh, and that doesn't count the financial uh, cost uh, of maintaining this, nor the social or uh, emotional costs of uh, looking after these patients. It's really a, uh, escalating at a very fast pace. How did we get here? And we don't need to, to assign culpability if you, if you don't want to do that, but uh, this is certainly something that has, as you say, taken off. Uh, how do we get to this point where so many people in the U.S. are taking these kinds of drugs? 
Well, first of all, you know, we have had a, a try to maintain uh, people without pain. Uh, and I think that you have to say that uh, inadvertently the medical profession was responsible for a lot of this. Uh, we had ga- uh, gave out uh, pain medication and uh, people did not realize the addictive nature of a lot of the new uh, pain medications. Oxycodone, for example, is uh, was uh, touted as not being as uh, addictive as uh, uh, codeine was. Uh, and so uh, it was prescribed widely. And then on top of that, pain became one of the new vital signs and people try to uh, contain uh, people's pain by medicating them Uh, and then the government began to reimburse us on the basis of how well uh, we looked after people's pain all these things uh, began to uh, suggest that physicians should give more and more pain medications uh, which they did uh, and uh, it turns out right now that uh, 80% of heroin addicts started with some sort of prescription mm. drug. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, we have seen uh, an influx of new medications. Um, uh, they uh, have seen uh, coming in from China now uh, what you have uh, have begin to drugs that begin to be 100 times more potent uh, than morphine, uh, and uh, they are now being laced into the drugs. And so you may get a uh, drug that has been laced uh, and inadvertently way overdose from that. This goes back to the, the conversation we were having before the break. In part, uh, we were talking about measuring quality. There's certainly been efforts to measure pain as well. Is, is the measuring of pain a subjective thing? I know we've counted on patients to rate uh, with the smiley face to the wincing uh, cartoon face how they're, they're feeling at this point. Uh, is, is that still a problem, measuring how much pain a patient is in and, and when the patient needs to take the, the kind of medications that we're talking about? No question about it. It is a subjective measurement and various... Um, uh, I remember one time uh, I had a uh, kidney stone and I was well medicated and, uh, in fact, uh, it hurt a lot. And so I just wanted more. Something, uh, yeah. Please uh, get rid of the pain. Um, but, you know, we have to understand that about 80% of people in the United States at some time in their life have back pain. And if we give all of those some sort of uh, opioid uh, medication, we're going to put a lot of that medication out into the, into the environment. And so we have begun to look at new ways we can begin to treat people with back pain. Not everybody needs to have some sort of uh, medication. Uh, and so we've treated with uh, yeah. psych- psychological support, uh, with physiotherapy, et cetera. Mm. Uh, you're a Williams guy. I believe yes. you know there's a small school up in New Hampshire called Dartmouth. Not that you'd pay attention to yes. that. But, those but like when, you, when you and the Dartmouth grads, Senator Portman of Ohio, get together and talk about opioid. Portman's had the courage to lead on this. How do we get from Portman's leadership to Ohio's solution or the beginning of solution on this, uh, this heroin opioid epidemic? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is recognize the magnitude of the problem. Uh, and I think that's generally uh, not recognized uh, what a serious problem that is. And I don't think it was generally recognized until fairly recently, even amongst the medical profession. Um, and certainly it is not recognized amongst the general population. And until such time as people understand the magnitude of the problem, I, we're not going to get a, a solution to it because the solution is not just uh, located in the medical profession. It's not just located uh, in the public. It's, uh, frankly, it's going to require education in the schools. It's going to require uh, the physicians. It's going to require the law enforcement. It's going to require 
the appreciation of this by legis- legislators. Uh, so all of society has to begin to understand what it is, how serious it is, and, and um, the multifactorial yeah. approach to fixing it. Do you blame doctors? I mean, we, we all perceive, I know, Dr. Costco, if you're going to be nice on this, but the fact is David and I and everyone we know perceives quality or levels of doctors. Is there a part of the doctor industry that's really been wrong on opioids? Well, I think all of us, uh, frankly, did not appreciate the magnitude of the problem. Uh, we didn't understand how addictive the drugs were. We didn't understand uh, the pr- uh, propensity that some people have to get easily addicted to some of these. And uh, so it's a process of education, uh, educating us as a profession. And uh, so we certainly are culpable for part of the, the issue. We, uh, we talked to Dr. Kruger yesterday, as, as we've mentioned, and one of the things he said is Washington's very good at convening meetings. You can get stakeholders to the table. We can talk about these issues. Uh, we can outline how big a problem it is, but solutions are another thing uh, entirely. I imagine you've thought about what could be done differently or should be done going forward. Is it going to be something that emanates from this, the nation's capital? Is it going to be done at the state, local level? Uh, what could make an, a market change here in what we're seeing? Well, first of all, you know, I think it has to be all of these. Uh, you know, let me tell you what we've done locally. We have begun to enter into reducing the amount of uh, uh, pain medications that we give to our patients. Uh, the state has now said that you get a seven-day uh, for adults uh, and five days of prescription uh, for children. Uh, we have made it easier to understand about uh, how people have had uh, a successive prescriptions and so we uh, uh, so we can get that from the electronic medical record we have uh, begun to have education both for the community and uh, for our physicians uh, we've begun to look at uh, Narcan which is the antidote for overdose and make that so you can get it without a prescription um, and all and we've begun to expand our, our treatments uh, locations and uh, capabilities uh, to deal with people who are addicted. So that's sort of uh, what's going on on the local ground level. Obviously, Washington can help a lot with financing and by uh, being um, a voice about the magnitude of the problem, uh, particularly coming from the president. Um, but uh, so it's going to. Re- I think there's lots of things that can come together and begin to help. We've got about 30 seconds left here. Uh, when somebody becomes addicted to these kinds of drugs, what is it like to get off of them? How do you how do you how do you begin to do it? Well, first of all, I think you have to understand the problem and have to enter into a treatment. Uh, and treatment really is can, depending on the magnitude of the problem can be drug assisted um, and that has been increasingly successful for people who have done that. Dr. Tubacastro, thank you very much for the time today. Joining us, who knows the shock of the deficits, Douglas Holtzikin, he joins us on our phone lines. Dr. Holtzikin, anything to talk about here, but I guess we go to the deficit. You have a vector of deficit to GDP growth that borders on frightening. Is anyone in Washington aware of where our deficit to GDP is heading? Uh, I'd say people are aware. The Congressional Budget Office has issued uh, numerous reports, including the long-term budget outlook, that uh, paint a pretty dire picture, but it hasn't risen to the uh, level of action uh, so far. And the fundamental action that is needed is something which puts 
Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the Affordable Care Act, the large federal health and uh, retirement programs on a sustainable trajectory. Right now, Social Security is scheduled to have to cut benefits 25% across the board in under two decades. That's a bad way to run a uh, retirement program, and it's a, a disservice to the overall uh, economy to have a big deficit. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reports this morning the stuff of Douglas Holtz-Eakins' nightmares, a $1.5 trillion tax cut uh, <laughs> that isn't paid for. Uh, is what happened to the Republican Party? Didn't you used to be a Republican? I mean, what happened me, to the, the Republican Party with the, the, the <laughs> no deficits and the Tea Party and all? Where did those people go? I think they're still out there, but there is a division, uh, certainly in the, the folks who are uh, running the House, Senate, and the White House right now. Uh, there's no evidence from his uh, campaign that the president is concerned at all about budget deficits. Uh, when he announced his candidacy, I remember distinctly him saying, uh, I'm not going to touch Social Security, I'm not going to touch Medicare, I'm just going to go get the mm -hmm. money. I, I don't know what that means, but certainly any reasonable assessment of the fiscal outlook says that you're going to have to make sensible modifications to those programs. It's an imperative. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, the president sets the tone in any uh, administration and in any um, Washington, and, and that's an important issue right now. Douglas Olsekin with us, the American Action Forum president, obviously former director of the CBO, but we all knew that. Mike McKee, Alice Rivlin will join us on our FET show tomorrow. Excellent. Well, I'm, she invented it, and Holtzie can kick the thing forward. I'm not sure that she <laughs> she would disagree with Doug on uh, the budget deficits. Uh, there is an argument, monetary mo modern monetary theory. They're having a big convention um, next week, uh, uh, next month, um, out in Kansas City. The people, the adherents to this, that suggests that because we have a printing press and we have a uh, fiat currency, we can live with these deficits. Uh, it's not really a problem. And uh, in essence, you can, if you want, uh, consider it monetization. The only thing you have to be careful of is inflation. So given the experience of the Obama administration and the big deficits that were run up in trying to get out of the uh, the, the, the Great Recession, why, just for the sake of argument, couldn't we have a tax cut like they're talking about and a deficit like they're talking about and still survive it? So I think in the end, you can't decide now whether you like or dislike uh, the, the rumors of a trillion and a half dollar additional deficit over the next 10 years. That does depend on the quality of the tax policy. Uh, there's no question that the U.S. is growing poorly. Its trend productivity growth is too low. Uh, standard of living is rising too slowly. Uh, some combination of regulatory reforms, tax reforms, uh, and infrastructure and education well, are probably the best recipe. So we'll see what gets proposed well, there, and I'll reserve judgment on that. But I think you have to always think about the deficit very differently at this point in the cycle. We are essentially at full employment by any measure versus when you had 10% unemployment. Those are very different animals. Yeah. These deficits are far more difficult to get rid of, and they're more important to get rid of. Yeah. Michael McKee with us. He only agreed because the Denver Broncos are doing better than good. And, Mike, it's always a good time to speak to Dr. Holtzikin, Douglas Holtzikin of the American Action Forum. Uh, we talk about a vector for the deficit to GDP, uh, Doug. Is it a different vector? Is the makeup of our growing deficit to GDP different than the last time we did this ballet? Uh, each time uh, we do this, it becomes more and more a story that's just about the entitlement programs. 
I mean, if you go back to success in balancing the budget in the late 90s, uh, that was largely accomplished by, uh, A, the dot-com bubble. I don't think we want to have uh, a big bubble again. Uh, B, caps on discretionary spending, the annual decisions by Congress. And we're in a very different world now. We're, we're in a world where two-thirds of the budget is uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, federal health programs. Uh, those programs are growing faster at, at rates like 6 and 7%. Then you could plausibly have revenue growth, which is about 4% nominal. And in the end, those programs are growing so rapidly that they're really pushing out of the budget national defense, basic research, infrastructure, education, all the things our founders saw as the role of government. So we have a real problem both in the top line mismatch between revenue and spending and in the composition of the budget. When uh, you look at those entitlement programs, do you have it? I suppose this is a, a, a naive question. Stan Collender would say, there you go, thinking logically again. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's illegal in Washington. I know. You can't do, that. <laughs> do, do you have any hope that, uh, as uh, uh, maybe misquoting W.C. Fields or misattributing this, but the, the uh, um, nearness of a hanging may concentrate the mind? Uh, do you think <laughs> that we will see any action over the next few years in terms of the, uh, the, the entitlement programs? Well, I mean, really two thoughts on that. The first is how important it is to move quickly, because it takes a long time to change those programs, and, and changes have to be phased in. People have to know what the deal is on their retirement, for example. So there is some you know, urgency in my mind to, to making some steps forward. And if you don't, the only thing you'll be able to do to close the deficit in a crisis is jack up taxes. And generally, you're in a crisis because the economy is not performing well, and that's going to be the wrong time to be doing that. So you want to avoid that that sort of constellation of problems by getting going now. The one thing we did see this year was the House and the Senate take up health care bills. And if you look inside those bills, those were major reforms of two entitlement programs, Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act. Whether you like those reforms or not, and that's a different debate, the fact that they took up entitlement reform, I think, was really uh, a, a tremendously important thing. It, it looks like the Senate's trying to revive that effort. I, I don't know if there's any real reason to be optimistic about it getting done, but we, we do need to, to take on the, these rising spending programs and do it in a way that's sensible for the beneficiaries. Well, uh, speaking of the entitlement programs in health care you just mentioned, uh, it looks like the uh the dead have arisen in Washington. Uh, <laughs> Graham Cassidy. Uh, I, it's sort of two questions about this. But first, um, the, the, what do you think the odds are that the Senate would actually pass this? Oh, I think they're, they're well less than 50-50 as we speak. But there has been a remarkable change in sentiment on the ground in the past week. I think even last Friday, there was no real reason to believe that Graham Cassidy was other than an exercise by its authors. But Republicans in the Senate have heard repeatedly from the people back home that they're unhappy with their failure. They're hearing from the donors that they're unhappy with their failure. And they are now serious about taking this back up. And that, that's a sea change from even a week ago. And I'm quite surprised by that. So we'll see how it evolves. I still don't see how it gets over the finish line. But um, the fact that they're even taking it up, I think, is important. Uh, let me uh, follow that up with this question here. In talking about the uh, tax reform and the health care programs, Senator John Kennedy, this is not the old John Kennedy, obviously. Of Louisiana. Senator from Louisiana, yes. yes. He yep. said, he's quoted in the Wall Street Journal this morning, quote, For every economist, there's an equal and opposite economist, and they're usually wrong. Do you think the mm. financial crisis 
did such damage to the reputation of economists that um, politicians feel f- completely free now to ignore whatever recommendations uh, an economist may come up with if, if it doesn't fit their preconceived idea? Uh, I don't know if it was just the financial crisis, but I, I do think, you know, during the course of my career, I've been concerned that economists have oversold their capacity to uh, forecast the economy, forecast the impact of policy changes, and basically fine-tune business cycles from Washington. Uh, that That's never been a big yeah. success, and there's, there's a long track record of, of failure on that front. The financial crisis, no one saw that coming. I, I don't think that's helped. Um, but, you know, it's, it's well, not just economists. You, you could also appeal to your common sense, and uh, some of the things that are, that are going on, for example, having uh, a projection in the, in the budget where interest on public borrowing will be the third largest program in the federal budget well, uh, in 10 years, I mean, that doesn't take an well, economist to realize, geez, you're tying up all okay. the money on just paying interest. This is an important insight, Mike. Thank you for bringing this up. And we consider uh, Senator Kennedy to be of great value when he speaks with Bloomberg surveillance. Doug, I'm going to disagree with the polarity of economists. There's one guy over there. There's another woman over there. They don't agree, and it makes for great TV or radio. The fact is, there's a common central tendency to economists on a Venn diagram. There's a lot of commonality between John Taylor of Stanford and Paul Krugman of Princeton. And the issue is within the crisis, that central tendency was so far off. I would go to the center rather than the polarities that Senator Kennedy brings up. I think that's a fair comment. I really do. I mean, McConnell's by and large do agree, and um, the places where they don't agree get the most attention. Yeah. And, and quite frankly, the notion that somehow economists are uniquely equipped to, to do forecasting, I think, is misplaced. I mean, Correct. You know, forecasting the future it, isn't hard. Being it, right is. Mike, and, jump and in economists here. economists are no better. Mike, this is critically important. As Noah Rabini has stated, what everybody got wrong was the amplitudes. A lot of people yeah. predicted it, but we completely missed the sign functions, the amplitudes of these shocks in the crisis. A uh, question from a listener here, Tom. Uh, for, for Doug, uh, as Congress considers fiscal policy, and they're looking at ta- gigantic tax cuts as, as it, um, w- they want to know which stimulus works best. I mean, the government can Good buy question. things, can increase transfer payments. We're talking about that. Uh, can cut taxes. Uh, can uh, use corporate tax provisions. Um, wh- what would be the best thing, the most effective thing to boost growth? Uh, this is not a stimulus um, moment. We, we are essentially at full employment. There are very few opportunities for low-hanging fruit where you put people back to work and do Keynesian-style stimulus. This has to be genuinely focused on the supply side of the economy and raising the trend rate of growth and, and, and doing that by raising productivity growth. So what is interesting about this set of discussions about tax reform is they are mm. very much focused on the business tax issues and on the capacity of yeah. businesses to invest, innovate, do it in the United States, and, and hire workers and, and yeah. give them raises. Uh, that's the key, and that's, that's the test by which you should judge the tax proposals. If it's provide some cash to individuals to go out and spend, there's not going to be much out of that. That has no, yeah. no lasting impact on the economy. Thank you so much, Douglas Holtzik. Generous of you to be with us this morning with the American Action Forum.
Michael McKee is at the exit stage right, and it's good to have Mrs. Lundquist with us. Joining us now, Scarlett Fu. Hello, Tom. uh, Of uh, fame and fortune. Tomorrow we have our Fed Day. Scarlett Fu leading our coverage with Bill Gross. That'll be on TV at 2 p.m. and radio. radio, 2 p.m. as well. But now is a lovely annual visit. We treasure this visit with a guy 14 years in of building hockey from a comedy of 400-some, whatever the small amount of money was, into a billion-dollar business. I want to ask one question. I know Scarlett really wants to drive forward the present business conversation. Where you are now, what's the next stage for NHL? You had your huge Canadian TV deal. You had this, the success of NBC uh, Sports Hockey. What's the next big commissioner-like transaction for you? Well, first of all, it's good to be with you for our annual visit. And I know time flies when you're having fun, but it's actually been 24-plus years. Excuse not me, 24. I, th- I threw a decade on it. Well, it's okay. Me. You know, yeah. it's, you get to be our age. Every year matters. Uh, we're very excited about the start of the season. Uh, for us, the opportunities presented by digital platforms and the social media uh, really gives us a way to connect with our fans. Our fans tend to be very tech-savvy, very avid. And since historically, and I'm now talking 20, 30 years ago, we were underserved by traditional media, the current landscape gives us a lot Mm -hmm. of great opportunities. Secondly, uh, we currently have two teams in China, and the opportunity to grow the game worldwide, there are a lot of places throughout the world where hockey is already strong. Mm-hmm. Roughly 25% of our players come from outside of North Mr. America. Mr. Hagelin would suggest that would be true with Sweden be, leading the way. Uh, and Sweden actually mm-hmm. is is the largest is, exporter of NHL players. Scarlett, I'm out of touch. Is Yager in a uniform this year? Not yet. Now, are you working yes, on that? Well, I don't work on that. I got to make some news here. What I think Mr. Redmond is saying that it's a good. There's a good chance we'll see. Yeah, him no, I, 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 no, no, I don't know. Yet. I don't know. He doesn't have a contract, uh, and he he's a great ambassador for the game. He's one of the great players of the game, and we'll see if uh, he hooks right. on to somebody. For those of you globally not into hockey, Jeremy Hager is 102 and can still put the puck <laughs> in the net. Not quite that old. Scarlett, jump in. He works harder than any other 20 year old player. Uh, you talked about digital platforms. The NHL streamed a handful of games on Twitter last season. What did you learn from that experience? What worked? What needs to be tweaked, refined? Well, the the issue, I think, ultimately is going to be not just taking broadcast content and stream it. It's whether or not uh, some of the social media uh, or other digital companies decide that they're going to produce games differently Mm. that may be directed more to the way uh, that... (laughs) Excuse me, perhaps... That's a surveillance sneeze. That's okay. That perhaps millennials and Gen Zs will want to consume the games differently. We don't know that that's the case because, frankly, uh, Rogers in Canada and NBC in the United States do incredible jobs covering our games. But as more and more young people are either cord nevers or they're cord cutters, we have to make sure that however we're presenting the game is relevant uh, to, to particularly young people. How do esports fit into that then? Uh, I view esports as an opportunity for us to teach people the game and to use. Introduce so, hockey to them. Introduce hockey to them and 
to create a better sense of community. Ultimately, mm. what we're going to work on is a series of competitions where fans of teams will compete against each right. other and have some, you know, North American tournament. That's called engagement, Tom. Yeah. Very good. Okay, I didn't, I was, I didn't miss that. Gary, you know that I've been a critic of the changes in the games. I sometimes, when I get upset, call it the National Deflection League, which is the only way you can get the puck. He doesn't by these like goalies. when people deflect the Nowadays, puck into the goal. What are you going to do to open up the game? you got some guys on NBC that used to play the game differently than it's played now. What are you going to do to open up the game? And let me start with block shots. you got two guys on the ice, gifted defensemen, essentially being second and third goalies. Well, in in effect, our game uh, has what you called deflections because our players have never been more skilled. Agreed. Our co- 100% our co- agreed. Coaches have never been better on their system. Having said that, the game's never been faster, never agreed. been when... Agreed. 100% what, agree. In terms of lead changes in the game and ability to have the unpredictability we have in our season. Would, would we like to see it a little more open, perhaps... If goaltenders were a little smaller, and I don't mean physically, I'm talking about equipment, which is something that we're working on, that will open Please. up more space. That changed uh, our season, though. We saw a bit. Well, we, we, it's a work in progress, and it's something we do with the Players Association and the unofficial goaltenders union. And there's some resistance right. to some of the changes, which we understand because this is their livelihood. We, we'd like to shrink the equipment but not cause any I mean, risk of injury. I, I know, Scarlett, you've got a – I'm going to ask one more question on this. I don't want you to go back to Gump Worsley. I don't want you to go back to me watching Don Cherry and L. Arbor block ch- shots years ago. I want you to get back to what Rennick did, the guy on NBC. Ronick? Ronick, excuse yeah. me. G- Jeremy Ronick, a Thayer, and what he does on uh, NBC, what he did for the Blackhawks, which is a 30 or 40 foot shot that goes by the guy. I would respectfully you, you, suggest that's missing. Well, you, you would be an advocate of bigger nets. Uh, which would open up more he angles. Has talked about but, that. but I'll take but, a shrunk, shrunken goalie equipment well, any but, day. But but also physically, the goalies are bigger in terms of height and weight than they've ever been. Uh, but it, it's not a problem, but it's a trend that we're watching, and we'll make adjustments. One of the things we're, we're doing as well is we're going to heighten the standard on slashing this year. Please. So, we no, saw no, that we, in the preseason yeah, game yesterday with the Rangers versus we, the we don't We don't want broken hands and fingers, yes. particularly for the skilled players. So a slash at or around the hands, we're going to call them more tightly. Love it. Love it. We're breaking news this morning on this. Okay. Breaking, that's not breaking news, but that's okay. In our world, I, it is. Well, I understand. You talk about bigger goals. The players are smaller. They're more skilled. I'm, I'm thinking of Tyler Wong, yeah. who was an undrafted rookie, uh, still on a minor league contract, played in the Golden Knights' first preseason yeah. game, had a hat trick. Um, but his size, 5'9", highlights how much the league has changed during your tenure from what was once just about size and brawn. It, it's speed and skill. The game, we opened up the game. We, we, it, there are two things at play. One is, um, because of the system we have, all of our teams can afford to be competitive. We have extraordinary competitive balance, the best in all the sports. And if you look at it, last season, seven teams made the playoffs that didn't make them the year before. Parity. And, and I like competitive balance. I think it's a little more elegant. Uh, <laughs> but, but also, um, we, the four of the five worst teams from the year before actually made the playoffs as well. So no matter who you root for, you have hope that your team can make the playoffs. We opened up the game. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of how it's called, there's less what they used to call obstruction, hooking and holding and clutching and grabbing. And so if you've got speed and you can got skill, you can play this game. 
Let me ask you a final question here on the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, Bill Foley, the owner of the team, yes. has said that his team won't be available to bet on at some casinos on game day. Is there any plan for the league to ask bookies not to take bets the, on the team? The, the answer is we're not concerned about the betting on the game per se. There's a lot of betting going on, some of it legal, some of it's illegal. What we want to do is make sure that the environment in the arena is typical of what you see at an NHL arena, which is fan-friendly, mm. kid-friendly, and the like. We don't want it, not that there's anything wrong with it, but we don't want it, like, for example, at a, a racetrack where you can right. go get a ticket and go sit down yeah. and watch the event. We're looking, you know, people are going to bet. We don't want to make it part of the same right. experience. You mentioned last year in your Ute and Wisdom the resurgence of the Toronto Maple Leafs, arguably the most valuable sports entity in the world. Some would argue that, but I don't, I'm, I'm with them on it. What's your insight this year on this season? Who are you watching? Uh, you're co- the Golden Knights. It, it, it's, it's, well, no, come on. Well, the, what's going to be interesting is the fact that we provided the Golden Knights with the deepest expansion draft we've ever had. Yeah. So they, will, they should be more competitive. It'll be fun to watch. When you look at our game, the number of young players across the league, whether, whether it's mm-hmm. Eichel in Buffalo or Line A, uh, in Winnipeg or McDavid in Edmonton or Austin Matthews in Toronto and two or three other young players on each of those teams. Uh, this, okay. this is a young man's game. Gary Batman, thank you. Congratulations on another NHL season. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.